Good evening, Harvest. Uh, it is a joy to be here with you this evening. Um, happy Mother's Day. You were our mother. Um, you planted us, and um, we are grateful for that. Your oversight, your nurturing, your resources, your prayers, your leadership, all those things, uh, we are grateful uh, for all of them. And so, your ongoing prayers, we thank you, Adrian, for your prayers tonight for us as we seek an associate. Um, the Lord is good, and it is good to be with you tonight. Great to be back home, so to speak, um, back at mom's house. I was in the office grabbing candy like I never left, so <laughs> great to be back. I invite you tonight to turn in your Bibles with me to uh, the gospel according to Isaiah, as it's sometimes referred to, the fifth gospel. Isaiah and chapter 44, Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to read tonight verses 6, 7, and 8 of Isaiah 44, but I want you to keep your Bibles open um, as we actually are going to look at a number of passages in chapters 44, 45, and 46. You'll, you'll notice a, a theme, a thread uh, that emerges uh, from these, um, these, these chapters. And uh, verses 6 through 8 of chapter 44 gives us a good uh, starting point. So let me read those, Isaiah 44 and verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but His Word will abide forever. May He bless it to us tonight. Well, boys and girls, if somebody asked you uh, to name the most basic doctrine in all the Bible, what would you say? There's a lot of probably right answers to that question, but I think you could make a good argument that the most basic of all doctrines found in Scripture is the fact that there is only one God. There's only one. Early on in the children's catechism, one of the questions says, are there more gods than one? The answer is no, there is only one God. God. John Dixon, uh, in his book, The Best-Kept Secret of Christian Mission, writes, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible makes the resounding, unapologetic declaration that there is just one Creator and Lord of the world. And he goes on to say how it begins in Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he says to ancient readers, this was not simply a sensible way to start a holy book. It was a huge swipe at the entire religious outlook of the time. In the ancient world, there were gods for everything. And here you have a people who follow this book who are claiming an exclusive God. He's the only one. They're not saying that He's the best among others. They're saying He's the only one, and that matters. And we're going to look at that this evening. Uh, 
Isaiah is writing to a people, a rebellious people, who are going to be sent into exile in Babylon very soon. And Babylon itself is translated gate of gods. And so while in exile, uh, they're going to be called by God to stand up in courage and to share with their neighbors the fact that God is the only God that there is. Now, of all the claims that Christians make, this is perhaps the one that offends people the most, uh, the claim to exclusivity. Not simply that, hey, this is a good option among others, you ought to try it, but our message is literally, this is the only message there is, because there's only one God. And we're going to consider two headings tonight as we make our way through these uh, chapters and verses, uh, beginning with the evidence and then considering the implications. So, how does God prove that He is the only God from these chapters, and then uh, why does it matter? So, first, the evidence. No fewer than ten times in these three chapters does God say something equivalent to what He says in chapter 45 and verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. How does He prove that? How does He show that? in the text. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to look at a number of these places in these chapters. Well, first of all, his first evidence, Exhibit A, is his sovereignty and lordship over creation. Over creation. The the ancients had their own versions of how this world came into being. One of them, for example, comes from the Babylonians. In the opening lines of the Enuma Elish, no fewer than nine gods are mentioned as having something to do with the events of creation. There were the gods of the sun, there were the gods of the moon, different gods for different parts. But, but what does God in the Scripture say about Himself as it relates to creation? Look with me at chapter 44 and verse 24. Verse 24 of chapter 44 says, "'Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. By myself. It sounds like maybe a a grandchild who would insist to do something on her own because she's independent, she's learning. It's as if God is, is saying and insisting, I've done this all by myself. This is not creation by committee. God is not limited. By the word of His own mouth, He breathed all that is into existence. Listen again, this time in chapter 45 and verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. He wants us to see the connection between him as creator and the fact that he's the only one. No wonder King David says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim His handiwork. The skies, the the heavens above the stars, it preaches a message about the glory of God. Day to day pours out speech 
and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Earlier on, we're going through Isaiah together at Grace Fellowship. We noticed uh, that God knows all the stars by name, all the stars by name. It's estimated that in ancient Israel, uh, one could see approximately 5,000 uh, visible stars at night. Astronomers now estimate that there are more than 400 billion stars in the Milky Way alone and that there are 125 billion galaxies in the universe. The total number of stars is estimated at 10 billion trillion. Ken Vandermolen can correct me if I'm wrong on that. And God knows them all by name, right? God knows them all by name, Isaiah says. That's evidence, number one, creation, but there's more. It's not simply that he made the world and everything in it and then left it to run its own course. Uh, that's called deism, and deism is incompatible with the real God of the Bible. For the God who reveals himself, including here in Isaiah, is intimately and sovereignly involved in the regular and ongoing events of history. So secondly, consider uh, the second piece of evidence He's sovereign over history. In the opening lines of chapter 45, uh, God himself has a conversation with a future king named Cyrus. He will be the future king of the Persians who will rise up and he will eventually defeat the Babylonians so that he can open the doorway for the exiled people of God to return to the promised land. And what we find here in these opening verses of chapter 45 is both fascinating and illuminating when it comes to God's activity over the affairs of men. So look with me, verses 1 and following of chapter 45, thus says the Lord to, notice, His anointed, His anointed. That's an unusual thing. It, it would have surprised the original hearers. Uh, anointed, uh, those who were anointed in those days were either kings of Israel or high priests. Cyrus, a pagan king, who according to verse 4 doesn't even know the Lord, is anointed by the living God to do God's bidding. Listen to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, said God, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may be not closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that, listen, you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you, Cyrus, by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
So the movements and the choices and even the successes of Cyrus are not random or ultimately up to him, but over all of it, God is saying, he is in control. God alone. Which means, of course, that this same God who held the hands of Cyrus is the God who holds the hand of every king, every leader, every president, every ruler in our day as well. And if this is true on a macro level, if God is the only God and the Lord of history, this also means by implication that God is the Lord over your life and my life and our circumstances. And that's something I need to hear. That's something you need to hear. That God holds you by the hand, as it were, and leads you and guides you, even when we cannot make sense of what is happening around us. So he's God over creation, he's God over history, but there's a third piece of evidence that he wants to show us. He is also supreme over idolatry, idolatry. Turn with me now to chapter 46. Chapter 46, God compares himself to the false gods of the Babylonians. Now, these people, the Israelites, are going to be living in Babylon, as I've mentioned, and maybe 75, 100 years from now. And while they're there, they're, they're no doubt going to struggle at various points to believe in the promises of God and the character of God. They might even come to doubt some of the things that they've been catechized in, such as there's only one God. When things are, are, are going poorly for them, when they're far away from their home, maybe they're going to start to wonder things like, well, maybe, maybe that was all a lie. Maybe there are more gods than the God of Israel. Maybe the Babylonian gods can bail us out of this thing, can do certain things that maybe Yahweh just isn't interested in helping us in. Well, what's God's answer to that sort of uh, questioning? Well, look with me at verse 5 of Isaiah 46. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship Verse 7, they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Notice that. Idols are nothing to the worshiper but ultimately burdens based on our own performance. And it's easy for us, it's easy for me to think, well, in our context, we don't struggle with this. We don't struggle with bowing down to images and gold and silver and wood. But you and I both know very well that we live in a world and we have the kind of heart that gives ourselves over all the time to our own idols. Finding our joy, finding our meaning, finding our significance, finding our identity in the created things of this world horizontally. And over and over again in uh, the Gospel of Isaiah, God is reminding His people of how foolish and frivolous that is. Turn back to chapter 44. 
Notice verses 9 and following. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Verse 10, who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. How does God then counter that? Well, back in chapter 46, verse 3, he says, listen to me. He wants you to listen. O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, notice, God says to his people, I will carry you. I will carry you. See how different it is when we try to put the burdens of idols on our shoulders and we bear the brunt and we try to carry them and it ends up weighing us down and crushing us. God carries us. He says, I have made and I will bear. I will carry and save. He will bear our burdens. Remember this, he says, and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Creation, history, idolatry. The fourth piece of evidence is redemption. In chapter 44, God speaks directly to his people and here's what he reminds them as an impetus for them to give him back their hearts. So chapter 44 and verse 21, he says to his children, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. God says, I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, break forth into singing. O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. And th think about this. 
If, if the people of God could say these things, if God could say these things to Israel in the Old Covenant, how much more can He say this to you and to me tonight in the New Covenant? This side of the cross and the empty tomb, a better Moses declares these things. His name is Jesus. We have been given and granted a better exodus of redemption, not just through the Red Sea, but through the cross of God's own Son. So that's the evidence that God provides, and we could say more, but that, that's enough for tonight. As we then consider, secondly, the implications, the, the, the sort of the so what question. Okay, so, so God's the only God. I've known that, been brought up in the church maybe, known that for a very long time. What difference does that make to know that? That God is the only God, that He's the only God over creation and history and idolatry and redemption. Well, secondly, let's consider the implications. I think there's at least two uh, from the text, from these chapters, one for Israel and the church and, and the other for the world. What difference should it make, the fact that there's only one God? Or is this just something we tuck away in our brains or perhaps overlook or take for granted? So what if God is the only one? But if God is the only God, and He is, then it means, among other things, that we must be bold in telling others that He, as the only God, deserves their worship and ours. That, that's what John Piper argues in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason we do missions is because we want people to worship the true and only God. John Dixon asks, why do we reach out to others with the news of Christ? What ultimately is the driving idea behind God's mission to the world? There are plenty of good biblical reasons to this. You could say we promote Christ because He means so much to us personally, and that's true. I hope that's true for you tonight. He means so much to you personally that you're compelled uh, to want to declare Him to others. Uh, you could say we promote Christ because in the Great Commission, He commands us to do so, and that's true as well. Uh, but Dixon says, I want to suggest that a more comprehensive reality drives our desire to make Christ known to the world, and, and it's this, that He's the only God there is. Listen to what he says to his people. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Imagine if Christ was simply one reasonable option among many options. There's no way we would feel as compelled to bear witness of Him. Or if the martyrs throughout the ages of the church knew that there were lots of options, lots of roads, lots of different ways to be saved, lots of different gods, try this one, 
if, if they really believed that, there's no way they would have given themselves and their bodies to be burned for, for, for that. But they, they were willing because they knew this is the only God, this is the only message, this is the only Savior. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. And because Jesus is God, and because there's only one God who is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, we have no other choice but to tell others who He is and and what He's done. Dixon says, monotheism and mission are intimately related. Monotheism, there's only one God, and mission are intimately related. He says the existence of just one God makes our mission to the many essential. When people uh, breathe God's air but don't acknowledge Him, we get to defend Him. We get to bear witness. When people take His name in vain, we get to speak for our God. When people enjoy His gifts but don't give Him glory, we get to, by God's grace, extol Him. When people reject the gospel and turn to other false religions, we get to try to persuade them. There's a a story about a a group of young men in Detroit in the 1930s who uh, walked on a bus and went all the way to the back, and there was a a guy sitting down in the back of the bus, and these uh, three young men uh, proceeded to mock him and, and, uh, and, and taunt him. They were trying to provoke him to a fight. He just sat there, kind of took it. But when his stop came, uh, he stood up, and they quickly realized how big this guy was. He was a lot bigger than they thought he was. And when he got off the bus, he walked past them, reached into his pocket, and gave them his business card. On it read, Joe Lewis, professional boxer. And in the 1930s, Joe Lewis wasn't just one of many boxers. He was the greatest boxer of his age. Of course, with one swing, he could have sent all three boys through the window, but by all accounts, he was a humble man. But what if you were sitting there that day in the back of the bus, and you were Joe Lewis's friend? I mean, wouldn't you want to just speak up? Wouldn't you want to defend your friend and tell these young men, do you have any idea who you're mocking? And that's what we get to do when it comes to God. Not that He needs our defending, but people don't know. People don't know who God is unless we tell them. We're called to to tell them not only with urgency but also with compassion, knowing that we too were blind and ignorant and children of wrath, worshipers worshiping the wrong object, but By the sheer grace of God, our Father mercifully and sovereignly and supernaturally opened our eyes if you're here tonight and you have faith in Jesus Christ. And He revealed to you, didn't He, who He really is and who you really are. And He showed you and and called you and brought you to believe in the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. See, all, all of this was to be Israel's job I mean, God called them out of darkness 
not because of anything in them, not because they were large in number, because, but because of His love for them. But He called them out of darkness and brought them into a marvelous light so that they could and would bear His witness. Not to cower and be embarrassed by their religion's unusual claim to exclusivity, but to preach it from the rooftops, to show that because that's true, there's only one God That's why the world must turn to Him from their lifeless idols. Some of you remember the testimony of the atheist Penn Jillette of the magic duo Penn and Teller, who basically says, how much do you have to hate someone not to tell them the gospel if you think that's their only hope? He says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? In an interview, he says, I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't think that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point in which I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So what do we tell them? What do we tell people? The greatest news in all the world, that the one true and living holy God whom we've sinned against has made provision for us in His Son by sending Him to live a perfect life, die a substitutionary atoning death, and to rise again from the dead. Which, by the way, the crucifixion was sovereignly orchestrated by God, Acts 2.23. Why did God do it that way? The answer is to, to show off His glory Seems like a strange way to show off your glory on a Roman crucifixion. But that's the very essence and heart of the gospel. That's where we begin to see who God is. Not only mighty and holy and worthy and transcendent, but merciful and gracious and eminent and tender. Christianity is an exclusive message. There's only one God. There's only one creator. There's only one Lord over history. One God above the other so-called false gods. But there's also only one Savior. And the fact that there is a Savior is what's so incredible. The fact that there is a Savior. The question tonight for you and for me is this. Are we trusting this Savior? Are we trusting this God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Listen to what He says to you tonight if you're lost, if you're disoriented, if you're stuck. Chapter 45 and verse 22 says, turn to me and be saved. Turn to me and be saved, God says, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's the verse uh, that the Lord used to convert a young man named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was on his way to church on a Sunday morning. It was snowy out. It was so snowy out that he couldn't make it to his church, and so he uh, turned and he found this little Methodist church. And the preacher didn't even show up. It was so snowy. 
And so a guy shows up. Spurgeon recounts there's about 12 to 15 people there that morning. And a man stands up and couldn't even pronounce some of the words, but he stood up and he read Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon says, there was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. Then the good man followed up his text in this way, Spurgeon recounts, look unto me. I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me. Look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. There and then, Spurgeon says, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, look to Jesus tonight. Why? Because there's only one God. There's only one gospel but it's the only gospel we need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a, um, in some ways, simple message. Are there more gods than one? Your scriptures are clear. There is only one God. Yet, Father, how this then should propel and compel us to urgency, in witness, Lord, to defend this one and only true God that men and women, boys and girls might come to worship you. And Lord, for us as well here tonight, whether we're lost, whether we're just tired and worn out, Lord, thank you again for calling us to turn to you and to be saved, to be strengthened to be sanctified. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, the great I am, who gave himself for our sins that we might be saved and delivered
Lord, what a message we have. Would you answer this prayer by opening up opportunities this week for us, whether it's in our home or our workplace or at school, our coming and our going, wherever, Lord, you lead us in your providence. For we know and we've been reminded tonight that you do control all events. We ask that you would open doors for us to speak boldly of the one and true living God. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.